to give res show respect to the audience and respect your own business. It was a way to protect it. Ladies and gentlemen, heels and faces, casual wrestling fans, and all you smart marks, I am Kayfabe AJ, and this is Kayfabe Avenue. And today we're going to be talking about the Brothers of Destruction documentary that just aired on WWE Network. You guys go, go back and check it out. Really good stuff. Uh, basically, it's, you know, uh, a look back. It's a sit-down conversation between Kane and Undertaker. And they just look back and go through their entire run together and, you know, highlight certain key moments of their career. And, you know, obviously that starts off with Kane actually meeting him. And, you know, when he first met him... At this time, Undertaker was full-on gimmick at all times. And Kane admitted that he was actually scared uh, when he met him because he was in the full garb, full wardrobe. And, he, you know, he really pulled off the dead man look. So, you know, for me personally, this is a, a great documentary because I grew up, you know, loving these two characters and really, you know, entertained by their story and just you know, captivated by the way it was just so different. It brought like a fantasy element to wrestling, which was, you know, very rare. Everything was either super gimmicky or based on stupid, you know, things like, you know, we got, we got a plumber, we got all the type of stuff, you know, kind of those dumb gimmicks. But this one was actually comic booky, supernatural, you know, had a little bit of the dark side in it. And, you know, for, you know, kids who like X-Men and stuff like that back then, this was that in live action. So, you know, definitely grew up loving these these two uh, characters and these two wrestlers in particular. They were a big part of hooking me into wrestling as a whole. You know, as a child, I always dabbled in the you know, original WWF days with the Hulk Hogan's and Macho Man's, but I was, you know, a little on the young side then, you know, kind of lost my attention and then came back when I saw The Rock and DX, but it was Undertaker and Kane that also, you know, hooked me, hooked me in and kept me captivated in, in storylines. So, like I said, go back. Go watch this documentary, but their first match against each other wasn't even in WWF. They actually squared off in Smoky Mountain Wrestling uh, territory from back in the days. is no longer around, um, but Kane wasn't even Kane. He wasn't even Isaac Yankum. He wasn't any of these gimmicks. He was known as the Unibomb back then, and, you know... Him and Taker had a classic. They had a sellout event. And this was pretty much the first, you know, glimpse of what kind of person Kane can be, how they matched up against each other. And, you know, it was 
a great match. Go check that out. I'm sure it's in the WWE Network somewhere. Check in the Smoky Mountain section. I'm pretty sure they have that that match up there. But this was a great look at Kane before he had any of the character, any of the growth. You know, and you know, he was a beast. Really cut, really tall, towering over Undertaker. Not a lot of people can actually say that they tower over the Undertaker. So this was like a little glimpse at the future, you know, for them. And when Kane finally debuted in under in um in Undertaker, excuse me. When Kane finally debuted in the WWF as Isaac Yankum, Undertaker actually went to to Vince and told him, listen, you're going to handcuff this dude. Like, he's a really, really good wrestler. You know, he, he has potential with him, and you're going to give him this dentist gimmick. And Taker goes on to ask, like, what was it? Did you, like, tell them you used to be a dentist or something? Because that's how I was back then. And, you know, that goes to my previous comment, how back then gimmicks were, like, plumbers and, uh, you know, IRS we had an IRS tax guy. We had um, a jail, uh, 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 somebody who was, you know, a robber and a whole bunch of dumb stuff, farmers and, you know, any any and everything. They try to, like, make a, a gimmick. So, you know, he asked Kane if he, he fell into that trap by mentioning that. And he's like, no, that I, I think it was. Bruce Pritchard, I'm not sure if it was Bruce Pritchard or, or someone, pretty much a uh, producer backstage said that they always wanted a dentist in wrestling, so they gave him, Kane this gimmick, so if you remember this, it was Kane the scary looking dentist, horrible teeth, looked like he'll destroy yours, and you know, he was paired up with Jerry the King Lawler, it was not gonna work, and it didn't last really long, but you know, sometimes people got to come into WWE, WWF, and deal with these horrible gimmicks. But sometimes the gimmicks pan out. And that that's what ended up happening later on with Kane. But before Kane, be, you know, actually became Kane, he went from Isaac Yankum DDS to the fake Razor. No, excuse me, to the fake Kevin Nash, the fake Diesel when Kevin Nash and Razor and Ramon left to WCW. So, you know, one of those guys that had all the potential in the world, had the build, you know, I wouldn't say too much about the look, but <laughs> big build, big guy, athletic as hell, talented, and you're putting him in these horrible gimmicks. So eventually it came to a point where Undertaker needed an opponent. So... This was definitely Bruce Pritchard came with the, up with the idea of having uh, Undertaker having a brother, and you know he thought that like Undertaker thought that Kane was was dead, and the name of the brother was Kane. So when Undertaker first originally made his debut in the nineties, he was named Kane the Undertaker. They you know dropped his first name real early, but Kane was you know just a uh, a throwback, a full circle moment for Undertaker's character. And now they split it into Kane was actually his brother. So when they pitched the idea to Bruce, from Bruce Pritchard to Undertaker, Undertaker was already spinning in his head. Like, you know, I used to be called Kane when I first came out. They said I was Kane the Undertaker. Maybe, 
that was in homage to his dead brother and all this. So they were creating the the Kane gimmick and Kane, you know, asked him, how did this come about? And they get into that conversation about, you know, Bruce Pritchard coming with the idea, all that stuff. And Kane actually says that when they first pitched the idea to him, his name was going to be Inferno. Didn't know that. That was hilarious to me. I'm super glad that they didn't name him Inferno. That would have been absolutely horrible. But nonetheless, what I did like about this segment of the documentary, they actually show Kane having practice, like Kane practice videos. You actually see him testing the sit-up motion with, you know, the neck twist and, you know, learning the character. That was something that, you know, I thought they pretty much just said, hey, put on this, this mask, put on this attire, go out there and do it. You know, this shows that they actually cared about the gimmick that they were trying to bring forth. A lot of people just like, yeah, you know what, I'll, I'll do it, get a check, and, and that's it. They're happy to be there. Kane actually showed that he, he gave a fuck about his gimmick and tried to, you know, learn and build it properly. I'll, you know, just like Undertaker. So you got to give Kane, you know, when, when people talk about protecting the gimmick and all that, you got to give Kane just as much as respect as Undertaker. Undertaker is one of those guys that are looked at as, you know, the best kayfabe keeper ever in history because this man never broke character like that. So that was that was a good testament to, to Kane, uh, the showcasing how much he, you know, practiced and, and cared for the character. So we end up going into a, a bit of conversation with Paul Barrow, and we know that Paul Barrow was very... In, you know, involved in these two men's careers and was an integral part in the whole buildup for Kane coming into WWE, WWF TV and facing Undertaker. And, you know, Kane didn't even have a, a, a voice at that point. Like, literally, if you weren't watching WWF back in those days, Kane literally, literally had no voice. They worked that into storyline. He had a voice box and then I don't know where he just stopped using it, but yeah, Kane had no voice. He was this burnt disfigured uh person who Undertaker supposedly burned his the funeral parlor down with his parents inside. So, you know, very funny we like not funny if it happened in real life, but very funny to hear see these guys talk about it like this bizarre-ass story, but you have to admit, the storytelling between Undertaker and Kane is probably the greatest storytelling in the history of WWE. This this story's been going on for 23 years. These guys, you know, the gimmick switching from Isaac Yankum and all these stupid things that they were doing before, once he became Kane, they never dropped that gimmick. That became his entire career. So the story definitely paid off but they get into you know Paul Bearer debuting Kane over a series of vignettes and finally the Hell in a Cell match where Kane debuts Shawn Michaels versus Undertaker they have this you know that in itself that match is definitely a classic if you have the network go watch Hell in a Cell match Shawn Michaels versus Undertaker 
the first ever Hell in a Cell was awesome. But what I remember the most was Kane's debut out of it. Outside of the fact that the match itself was great. Lights go out. Um, Kane's music hits. We see him with Paul Bearer. That quote of Vince McMahon, there's probably one of the biggest moments. And you can remember hearing it when you think about it is, that's got to be Kane. That's got to be Kane. So Kane walks down, rips open the Hell in a Cell door. They stand, they stand toe-to-toe. And nobody's ever stood toe-to-toe with Undertaker on that level and actually looked like they can eclipse the Undertaker taller. He's looking down on him. You know, first time that we ever seen Undertaker as a character show any kind of fear. And, you know, they were talking about that a lot. So hearing their side of this whole buildup was worth it. Then um, from the Hell in a Cell, they they pretty much, he attacks Undertaker, tombstones him. But throughout the next couple of months, Undertaker will refuse to fight Kane. So they spent months never, never, t- never actually having that match. So Kane's character went in the direction where he was fighting every everybody on the roster just to get to Undertaker. Then uh, a nice story, which I found hilarious, in one of these lead up, you know, um, promos trying to get Undertaker to fight Kane, they tell Kane he has to smack the Undertaker. So he's like, oh, man, I can't I, I can't smack the Undertaker. I have too much respect for for Taker. Like, no, nah, I can't do this. He goes to Taker and says, they want me to smack you. Like, I, I can't do that, man. You, If anything, you smack me. So <laughs> Undertaker damn near knocks him out. <laughs> See, Kane has so much respect and didn't want to smack... Taker, but Taker held no no punch no punches when when it came time for him. So that was hilarious. But their first actual match in WWE was at WrestleMania 14 versus each other, and this match was like Kane ended up losing this, and his character was new. But this was one of those big examples, and they mentioned that in the documentary that. You know, you can actually make someone a better star in defeat. Never in the history of Undertaker's character did anyone ever kick out a tombstone. And in this match, Kane kicked out of three tombstones. That was the first time anyone has ever kicked out of one, let alone three. So even in loss, he made Kane a huge star. So... You know, that's also one of one of the classic matches you need to see. It would eventually have a series of three WrestleMania uh, matches with Undertaker obviously winning all of them since Undertaker goes on to have a 21-1 and one sh- uh, streak. But, um, well, 21... That was like 22-2, and two, I think, ending his career. Yeah, he's about at 22-2. So... We um we go past Mania. They finally had their matchup. You know, they still have these guys in each other's orbit. And an- another funny, you know, thing that they, they talked about that they were able to do, 
you know, because their their characters were so special with the supernatural, you know, aspect and the mythological aspect of their characters. We got to see a lot of special effects, a lot of crazy things that honestly it probably would not have worked if it was anyone else. So one of those stories that they had, they made me laugh about too was like it was so bizarre, but it worked because of who they were and the characters that they were. Kane and Paul Barrow dig up the parents of the Undertaker and then choke slam him into the casket. So all you see is the visual of Undertaker laying on dirt and bones in a broken casket. But that that's the kind of bizarre storytelling that probably wouldn't even work nowadays. We're not even sure if that would work nowadays. So it was a really, really special thing. And, you know, speaking of special things, the special effects, and they were talking about the buildup that they had first time ever with lightning bolts and fire and a whole bunch of things that the fans, you know, over the years come to love. Like, that's one of my favorite aspects of their character. Like, you know, they're not truly supernatural, but it makes you forget while you're watching. You look forward to those things. That's why the Fiend gimmick works so much in 2020 because we don't have too much of that. So now that Kane and Undertaker are gone from WWE, we actually get to still have those little tastes of that kind of world with the Fiend. But, you know, one of the biggest special effects that they actually got to have was the Inferno match, which is typically just the ring surrounded by pyros and the ropes pretty much get lit on fire every couple of seconds. And you slam somebody when you, the, the slams, the sh- flames shoot up. So a big thing that they revealed about this match was they actually had no rehearsal at all. So what you saw in that Inferno match was on the fly the entire thing. Which is ridiculous because any one of those guys without any practice could have set themselves on fire and been badly injured. And that match went out, went off without a hitch. So true professionals. The one thing that Taker did say was every time the pyros exploded, it sucked the air out of the room. So they were like super gassed. And the fact that Kane and him and himself were Damn near fully suited and Kaney, especially with a mask, that they they were sweating buckets and you know I can imagine the exhaustion after that. Before we get to the end of this, let's take a quick break to our sponsors, the people who support Kayfabe Bath, and we'll be right back after these messages. And we're back, and we left off with. Kane and uh, Undertaker's Inferno match, finding out there was no rehearsal. That was amazing. But the next segment they talk about was the Hell in a Cell. I believe this was on King of the Ring 98, I believe. Hell in a Cell, Undertaker versus Mankind. Now, funny enough, this pay-per-view was the pay-per-view that Kane won his first ever championship match. Uh, world, chi- world title. Unfortunately, he'll lose it in 24 hours, but that's another story. 
But people really don't remember that because of the Hell in a Cell match. What we remember about that pay-per-view was Mankind, Mick Foley, getting chokeslammed by Undertaker through that cell, onto the mat, chokeslamming him on a pile of thumbtacks, throwing him off the cell, through the table. Badass. They have that discussion about that. How that all went. How it was scary seeing Mick. And funny enough, Mick was supposed to do a run out in Kane's match later. So the producers looked and said, hey, if Mick Foley can't get out there, you're going to have to figure it out. And Kane's like, what the hell? How is that on me? Like, you guys are the writers and stuff. You can't figure this out. Which was hilarious. Typical, hey, uh, we fucked up. We don't know what's going to happen. So um, you figure it out. But the next night, Kane lost it to Stone Cold. Unfortunately, like I said, and Taker comes out to uh, run Stone Cold off. And this was the first time they ever, you know, stood together in a way that we could see them as a tag team. So this was the first ever, like, union of the Brothers of Destruction. You know, in the previous night, Kane won it because Undertaker hit Stone Cold over the head with a steel chair leading to him bleeding in their first blood match. So... Kane ended up winning the match that way. So, Stone Cold winning the next night. Undertaker coming to make the save. Well, not to make the save, but to run off Stone Cold. This showed the fans the first glimpse of what they will be like as a team. And then, you know, they go on and show um, their, their lead up and their little runs as a tag team. They show them with tag team titles and they talk about how dominant they were. One of my favorite stories in this portion of the conversation was Kai and Ty. And they're saying pretty much Kai and Ty was like their first like real light guys they had to work with because they usually, you know, fight in the heavyweight. So as a tag team, these two guys can do anything. So on the fly, it wasn't even scripted. <laughs> these guys go to do like dual finishers and... Kane was supposed to mimic Undertaker's last ride. At this point, he's the American badass. So, Undertaker tells him to do the powerbomb. And he didn't realize that when he does the last ride, he also grips the tights when he goes to slam him. So, when Kane lifted him, he ends up throwing uh, Taka Mishinuku over his head backwards. And then, in the middle of the match... Undertaker, like a like if they were really big big brother and little bro, is teaching him how to power bomb, how to do the last ride power bomb in the ring. It was actually a real memorable segment, but they also talk about the American badass uh, gimmick switch for Undertaker because at this point the WWF was drifting into more of the realistic attitude era. So Undertaker felt like his gimmick wouldn't survive or he was afraid that it wouldn't survive the, you know, changing times. And he felt kind of handcuffed. Like he tried to say about Kane's gimmick before he felt that he was handcuffed in this gimmick and couldn't do more in this typical era. So he switched to the American badass, which was funny because Kane still stood who he was. Kane, you know, Still was mass, still was supernatural. And them two pairing together, that was probably one of my favorite pairings of the 
Brothers of Destruction, when Kane was still Kane and, and Undertaker was the American Badass, they had a killer run. Ended up being WWF Tag Team Champions at the same time as the WCW Tag Team Champions. And they did a lot of things. Did a, a good rivalries with Stone Cold and Triple H when they had the power trip. That was a great rivalry going back and forth um, over the world titles, the tag team titles, and the intercontinental titles. So, you know, that's one of my favorite runs for them personally as the Brothers of Destruction. So, you know, they reciprocate on Kane's end. And he says, you know, I understand how you feel because at a certain point, I started to feel that way. Like, my gimmick is, is handcuffing me with, you know, with the mask and... I'm getting, you know, complacent and a bit bored of where I've been, you know. So when they finally unmasked him, if he felt free, like he can he can do things that he couldn't do before. And Undertaker says his worry was that his character was burned. So how would they be able to pull that off? So Kane explained the way they pulled that off was it was a sight. Now it wasn't. Uh, physical scars it was metaphorical psychological scars so now they turned Kane from the burnt monster to the psychological maniacal monster you know the guy who has these mental issues he sees himself as this burnt monster and he's really not that so now it's more of a demented Kane and they went through a, a lot of highlights Kane going through destruction now when as a fan watching that live I was intrigued in the situation, but I was also hurt because I wanted Kane to be that world champion. I wanted Kane. I feel like to this day, they haven't given Kane that big monster run that I feel like he deserved. He did get one with the world championship on SmackDown, but I feel like they never really gave him the the just do championship, world championship run that he deserved. And I feel like once they took the mask off, because he was on a rise, I feel like once they took the mask off, they were kind of like, they gave him a couple of months of great build-up to his, his change, and then it was like they played it safe and never really gave him that shine until years later on his run on SmackDown. But, you know, they, they talk about reinvigorating Kane's career, and they go to the you know, Survivor Series build-up where Kane ended up helping Vince McMahon bury The Undertaker alive. And they they drifted past this story. And I feel like they should have highlighted this story a little bit more. I think that's probably one of the only... Like, this portion of the documentary, they kind of really skim past a lot of uh, meat of the, like, the history that they had together. That Survivor Series buried alive, they barely mentioned Mania 20. But from Survivor Series to Mania 20, that was great. Six like six months worth of storyline. Survivor Series is a big four, so it's in a quarter. That storyline went from Survivor Series through the Royal Rumble, from Royal Rumble through WrestleMania. So that went a good six months. They took Undertaker off TV. Then they would start taunting Kane in little ways, like a flickering of the light or something weird happening over the weeks. And then leading into the Rumble, we get the whole ring shaking and we get the promos and we get, you know, Undertaker promo distracting Kane to get eliminated. Then from the Rumble to the Mania, we get a whole bunch of 
you know, supernatural things happening. It was it was great. Leading into WrestleMania 20, which was in Madison Square Garden, me at what, probably 13 at the time, I was sad as fuck that I couldn't be in Madison Square Garden. I'll tell you that much, but I remember begging my mother to get the pay-per-view. She bought it for me. I got to see it. Everything from Paul Bearer coming back, his involvement to Undertaker's super long walk and Kane's acting like that was one one of my favorite one on one situations between them as well. They should have definitely highlighted that entire feud, but you know Kane. Moving off from that, Kane talks about how Undertaker elevated others unselfishly, and it's true. Like Undertaker wasn't somebody who lost a lot, but when he lost, it meant something. And he didn't mind elevating people. And he helped a lot of people backstage. You know, Undertaker's the, the locker room leader. He's the judge, jury, and executioner backstage. So, you know, they, they give Undertaker his... He gives Undertaker his respect in that. Then he goes on to ask Taker about Brock. And what I found interesting about this segment... Like, this has been talked about a lot. We all know Brock versus Taker, Mania 30. He ends up losing the streak. What I didn't know, and they revealed this piece of information, he was supposed to win that entire time. It was the day of the show, maybe a few hours before, he, Vince Man changed his mind and, and flipped it to Brock Lesnar. And Undertaker straight up admits it. I told Vince, I don't feel Brock needs it. And honestly, he didn't. But me, as a, as a fan watching all these years and knowing who Brock Lesnar is, I feel like, it was the most realistic at the time. It was the most realistic person for him to lose to. In hindsight, it should have been held off for somebody like a Bray Wyatt. And in my fantasy booking mind, since I was a kid, I've always thought Kane should win against Undertaker at WrestleMania at Undertaker's last WrestleMania. That they should retire each other or Kane should retire Undertaker. Or... Undertaker should re- so lose or retire to someone that he can pass that supernatural mantle to, which would have been perfect for Bray Wyatt or Bray Wyatt's Fiend. So, you know, I, I wish that would have happened. Um, hey, Undertaker showing up in Survivor Series. Who's who? Who's to say that the Fiend won't show up against them and that mantle will be passed then? But it didn't happen. He lost to Brock Lesnar. Brock broke the streak. And, you know, they had a, a couple good... You know, things I found out in that moment. Again, they, they skimmed a lot of this, you know, back history of of the Brothers of Destruction. And they jumped straight into um, Roman, Roman Reigns. And Taker talks about Roman saying, like, you know, he wished he had a better match for him, you know, because... Roman was the guy that he would have rather lose to rather than Brock Lesnar at WrestleMania 30 because he felt like he wanted to elevate a, a, another person. But at that time, Roman was, wasn't, was you know, ready yet. But he he felt like he would have rather it be Roman. And when he did finally have that match with Roman, it was it was a shit show. It was a, a real disaster. Um, You know, Undertaker showing his age and showing his injuries and a lot of boss spots. 
And that continued into the next segment. They talk about Brothers of Destruction versus DX. And I'm still frustrated at this match. And I'm still sad for all of those guys. Because Shawn Michaels, Triple H, Kane, and Undertaker. And you guys had one of the worst matches in history. Triple H tore his his, uh, shoulder minutes into the match. Kane's mask ended up falling off. Just so much like botches and and, stu- and horrible stuff. And the sad thing Kane says that this was a match that he felt he always wanted. That was his dream match with him and Taker. So it's sad that you know that that would be the last big Brothers of Destruction match. But after after this, they kind of reflect back on the careers and they thank each other. And even seeing it as a fan, like. I appreciated this documentary so much because you can tell that these guys have genuine respect for each other. As a fan, you respect both of these guys and what they did in the ring together. And this was a celebration of that. So definitely appreciated it. You know, Kane still respects Undertaker like he's a the big bro. You know, utmost respect to him. And Undertaker giving his respect back. These guys say, imagine if we never cross paths. Imagine where our careers would be if... We never, you know, stood toe-to-toe with each other. And God honest truth, Undertaker's career would be hollow without Kane. Kane made up a big part of the myth and the legacy of Undertaker. And vice versa, Kane probably would have straight up never had a great career because he was stuck in the gimmick rut. These guys owe each other their careers, and it was a great celebration of them both. I love both these guys, and if you love these guys, go and check it out on the WWE Network. Great documentary, and I could go on all day about Undertaker and Kane, but I will bid you adieu. You can find me at at Kayfabe Avenue on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, at the Kayfabe Avenue on Instagram, And if you like the podcast, please click that support link on Anchor. Click that support link on Apple Podcasts and subscribe and donate what you feel to help us uh, contribute more shows, continue the creativity, and keep this Kayfabe Avenue train running. So I have been Kayfabe AJ. This has been Kayfabe Avenue, and that was the Brothers of Destruction documentary. Austin, take us home. And that's the bottom line. Why? Because those stone cold said so. Thank you very much, you son of a bitch.